Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look today at verses 14 through 16. Over the past several months, we've been considering the biblical design that God has set forth for the church, and each of those passages was really heavy with teaching, lots of qualifications and requirements for ministry. And today, we're going to see a transition that's going to take place in the book. Paul is going to be moving away from a section that some people have titled public worship and into a section that some people have called prophetic warnings. What stands between those two sections, however, are the three verses that we are considering today. This is kind of like the hinge verse of the book. Although there are many points being made through the book of 1 Timothy, and although there are a few major themes that are repeated, what we are going to read today, in just a moment, is the beating heart of the book of 1 Timothy. This is the occasion when Paul bursts into exaltation. It's like as if he was riding, and all of a sudden he couldn't help but break into worship of the God whom he serves. Yes, this book is about ecclesiology, it's about church leadership, it's about how to live out the Christian life, it's how to guard against false teachers, but most centrally, this book is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And today's passage is straight-up good news. It is a beautiful glimpse into the multifaceted jewel of the gospel. Every time we arrive at a passage that provides a straightforward confession of the gospel like this one, there's always a possibility that people might kind of tune it out because of the simplicity of it or because of the familiarity they have with it. We might feel that it's so fundamental, and I learned this so long ago that I don't need to hear this again. However, the fact is this is foundational because it is necessary. That is why we must be reminded of it again. can't build a house well without the foundation. And if the foundation cracks or is removed, the house is in trouble. May we never grow tired of hearing the old, old story of how our king came to save us. So follow along now as I read aloud, starting in verse 14. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray that God would use this as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord God, I I plead with you to eliminate any foolish notion of overfamiliarity that might arise in the heart or mind of your people today. I pray, Lord, that we would humbly hear with ears given by the Spirit to understand your word and to apply it. God, I pray for every person in this room that we would have joy and delight in your Son as we see what he has done for us. Help us, Father God, as we come to this text to believe it and to carry it on forward in our lives as we live out each day. May this be the anthem of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everyone believes things that are inaccurate. I do. You do. And most of the time it's not intentional that we believe things that are untrue. We just happen to hear them or maybe decide them or for some reason have filtered through one way or another beliefs that are not accurate. Thankfully, most of the time it does not matter. Like if you believe that McDonald's is actual food, like I do, 
most of the time that's okay. It doesn't really hurt you most of the time if you falsely believe if that fortune cookies were invented in China, or it's doubtful that it will harm you if you have the false belief that lightning never strikes the same place twice. Until just recently, I had no understanding of what the word third world country actually meant. I didn't realize that this was a formulation from the Cold War where everybody who aligned with the United States and capitalism was considered first world and everybody who aligned with Russia and communism was considered second world and everybody, wealthy or poor, who did not choose a side was considered third world. That's why Nicaragua and Switzerland are technically both third world countries. I did not know that until like two weeks ago. But guess what? Getting that information wrong had very little bearing on my life. It didn't harm me. I didn't take action based upon it. But sometimes there is information that is inaccurate that we believe that causes harm to the way that we live. There are things that we commonly hold as views about the church that can be harmful because they distort the church of God and they hinder genuine worship. This section of Scripture helps us a lot because it destroys a couple of commonly held cultural ideas about what the church is and what it does. So what we're going to do is we're going to consider a couple of those, and then we're going to jump right into the confession that's listed here in our text. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, is down in verse 16. First, I want to answer an argument that has been made many times in recent years. There are many particularly common in the sensitive, seeker-sensitive movement, uh, movement that have viewed most of chapter 2 and 3 of this book of 1 Timothy as a suggestion or as a loose framework that can be altered or adapted however a lo- local church might see fit. So all the things that we've been studying about women in ministry and about pastoral ministry and about deacons, they would say these are more cultural expectations than they are demands of the scripture. And since our culture is so different, we need to contextualize things and we need to make sure that our ministry models and our leadership dynamics are are going to fit our society. Verse 15 simply undercuts all of those arguments. Any notion of the idea that this was just Paul's day and he was writing to people of his time is eliminated as we read through verse 15. He tells us that this is how all people should function in the household of God. This is how we are to behave. This is not a targeted solution for one congregation in one location. It stands as God's perfect model for how the operations of the church should work in all times, in all places. And I think we should honestly just be really happy with the fact that God has not left us to make up these things on our own. He has told us what is best for us and what is good for us and how we should operate. And I just honestly think that the master of the house should get to make the decisions. So let's trust what the Word of God teaches us regarding these things in 1 Timothy. The second thing that is a false false understanding people believe commonly is that the church is the building. Now, I know that we've probably heard this many times, but it's worth remembering it. It is very common for us to refer to this building as the church. I am going to church. I often say to my wife, I'm going to the church to study or to work. However, this is not what the Bible is talking about when it uses the word church. The word that Paul uses in this book for church is the Greek word ekklesia. It literally means the gathered people of God. If there is no gathering, there is no church. 
That's been a really important thing for us to remember over the last couple of years. The church can gather as a whole, or it can gather in parts, but it must gather. That can take place in this building. It can take place in my living room. It can take place in your backyard. It can take place at Call the Pizzeria around the corner. Wherever we are gathered, there we are, the church. How does our text today undercut the idea that the church is a building? Look again down at verse 15. He says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. No church in the first century had a building, much less a building like this one. They often met early in the morning and again early in the afternoon out in open public spaces or in a home of someone who had enough space to house them. Then when they became persecuted, they began gathering in the city of Rome, underground in the catacombs. I've been graced by the Lord to be able to actually go and see those catacombs where they were literally worshiping the living God surrounded by the dead. If he were speaking of a building here, he would not describe the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. No building should ever be described. Take, for example, the Hagia Sophia. Maybe you've heard of this building. It's one of the greatest buildings ever constructed by man. It was built in Istanbul almost 1,500 years ago. And at that time, it appears as though the proclamation of the gospel was powerful from that pulpit. Sadly, today, it is one of the most famous mosques in the world. Let me ask you, was that building the pillar and buttress of truth? No, it was not the pillar and buttress of truth. If, if it was, what changed? It has the same foundation stones, it has the same arches and spires, but even before the Ottoman Empire took it over, it had already spent centuries without the gospel. The building is not the pillar or buttress of truth. It is the people of God who faithfully serve and obey him who are the church. Practically speaking, this is an important concept because when Paul says that this is how we are to behave in God's household, it does not mean in the building that belongs to God. Household has already been used twice in this very chapters. Elders and deacons must rule over their households well right? This does not mean that an elder can take his child to the store and then the child is allowed to steal because he's not in the house. No, of course not. It means that those under the authority of the master of the house are to be in rightful submission and obedience to him. Once we were doing an evangelistic outreach in the parking lot of Redeeming Grace Fellowship about four or five years ago, and while we were there, we had all these inflatables and some face painting and balloons and other things that we were doing for kids basically to reach out to the community and try to get some folks to come and talk with us for a while, let them know that we were a church, that we were there now, and we wanted to do some evangelism. And one of these guys that came with his daughter has, uh, was having a conversation with me, and at one point his daughter had to use the restroom, so he asked where he could find it. I explained to him how to get there through the building, and he told his daughter to go ahead on her own. I said, it's, it's okay, you can, you can go with her, it's fine. It's, it's literally just like right there. And he's like, if I walk into that building... God will strike me dead. And I don't remember the exact words that I said, but it was something like, you know, it's the same God out here that it is in there, right? <laughs> like, if he's going to strike you dead, he doesn't have to wait till you enter in through those doorways. Why is, it, why is that perception around? It's because there is a deification of the building. But the church is the church wherever the church is. And God is God everywhere that he is. 
He is in all places equally. And that means that when we come to church, when we gather, we are not just to look like Christians here. We are not to just act as hypocrites who put on a mask for a few hours and then go live out in the world just like the world does. No, the child of God is to live out these things at all times in the light of God's face. It's also very important that we understand this because I have heard many times people say, I am just glad my friend, my relative, my child is going to a church. It's better for them to go to a church rather than no church. That is not necessarily true because there are many churches that are not just neutral, they're actually enemies of the cross preaching lies. So, for example, there are many buildings that have the name church on them that are preaching a false gospel that Paul condemns so harshly in the book of Galatians, the harshest book that he ever writes. He says to them, if you teach this kind of gospel, may you be anathema. That is the Greek word to say, may you be cursed by God, die now, and go to hell. It is the most extreme language ever used by Paul. And he says that of people who would share a false gospel. So we must be careful to encourage those who are, we are sending to churches to look for churches that are gospel-centered. That is one of the reasons why when you encourage people to go to church, you give them a church name. If they're in North Carolina or if they're in Florida, let me help you find church search ways. Point them to me. I will help them locate something. We want them to send not necessarily somebody exactly like us, but a church that is going to proclaim the truth of God from the scripture. Not everything that says church is a church. Now look again with me to verse 16. Listen to Paul's brief introduction here of this confession. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now this is a very interesting and honestly a very strange way to preface the poetic lyrics that are about to follow. Notice that this is, first of all, a confession. This is what we confess Now, the word confession is really important to historic Christianity. Confessions are short and foundational statements that the church would use to teach the basics of the faith. It was a way to simply state things that we agree upon and which we believe. It was a very brief way of saying, I align myself with the teaching of the apostles, and I express that through repeating or reciting these very simple lines of truth. The confession that we find here in verse 16 is almost certainly something that would have been sung. And that is believed by scholars because those who understand Greek way better than I ever will will tell you these things are not just poetic in their lines, but they are rhyming and they're kind of a staccato way that would have been sung six verses in this song. They flow as a pattern of six lines that would have probably been a hymn in the early church. In fact, it's possible that when Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail singing at midnight, that this might have been one of those songs that they were singing that night when the Lord sent an earthquake to free them. Now, we have no way of knowing that, but it's also probable that this is one of the songs that Timothy already knew. He probably had sung this with Timothy many times, Paul and Timothy together on their journeys. Songs are incredibly important for the believer. It's a way that God helps us to meditate upon his word. It's a a blessing that God made people with terrible, terrible memories able to hear a song and remember the lyrics. I mean, if you're anything like me, then, then you know hundreds of choruses from songs, maybe thousands of choruses that you have grown up hearing all your life. You have been memorizing and memorizing and memorizing. Before I move forward, I simply want you to to encourage you to fill your mind 
with good lyrics, with words of truth. Because if you're anything like me, you can rattle off all those thousands of songs that have no spiritual value. But how many songs do you know that would align with what the Scripture teaches we are to sing? Songs and hymns and spiritual songs. How many times do you come and are able to actually close your eyes while we're singing because you know the lyrics? Just a little secret. Um, if you're getting the Tuesday emails from the church, they usually go out on Tuesdays. Gideon often prepares and sends them. Every week, Rob puts together a list on YouTube of all the songs that we're going to sing. And you can prepare yourself to learn them even before we come. You can have those songs and learn them and memorize the words to them. Do you have more movie lines memorized than you have scripture memorized? It's a very easy thing to memorize things when they are on the screen or put to music. Know what you confess to be true about Christ. And one of the best ways to memorize it is by listening to good music that has it in the music itself. Commit to memory the truth of the word. Notice also the format here of this introduction that Paul gives. He says, great indeed, great indeed, he says, is this confession. Now, why does Paul add that? Now, let's think back to when Paul first took the gospel to Ephesus. This is where Timothy is now pastoring, and the letter is being written to Timothy in Ephesus. So, the church that he went to, when he originally preached the gospel there, we read about that in Acts 19. The people of Ephesus worshipped a goddess named Artemis. Perhaps you know her more from her other name, Diana, and perhaps you know her even more from modern comic book mythology because Artemis or Diana has been brought forward into our modern world in the form of Wonder Woman. In Ephesus, there was a great temple built around a meteorite that had fallen from the sky. And when the gospel reached Ephesus, some of the idol makers feared that Christianity was going to destroy their idol selling business. So what did they do? They provoked a riot. And in Acts chapter 19 verse 34, we read but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They don't just say it once in this chapter. It's actually four times we read that this is the chant that they kept repeating. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Do you know how hard it is to yell the same line over and over for two hours? This line, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, was the central confession of that city. The people would have heard and learned this phrase from childhood as they went to worship their false deity in their local temple. But Paul does not say, great is Artemis. He says, rather, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, by adding the word indeed, he is disqualifying any other thing that would claim equal greatness. The word indeed is to say that this is actually where greatness is. You say great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, no, great indeed is the confession that we are about to give you. And what is Paul saying is great? The mystery of godliness. Now, this will not make any sense to you at all if you use the modern meaning of the word mystery. In our world, we speak of mysteries as truth that we have to search for. We have to look for clues to solve well, this is quite literally the exact opposite of what the Bible is meaning by the word mystery. In Scripture, mystery means something that God delayed in explaining to us, but in time, He has revealed to us. It's something that was hidden that is now exposed, something that God kept secret that now He has revealed. For example, Ephesians chapter 5, we learn that marriage is a mystery. 
that all legitimate marriage that have ever taken place from Adam and Eve forward have always been about one thing. Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. A mystery is something that God has uncovered for us. He has displayed the answer to us. He has revealed knowledge that he has previously kept secret from us. So what is the mystery that is so great? The mystery of godliness. Now again, this is a curious thing to say until you read the very next word. After we read that this revealed godliness is great, Paul immediately writes the word he. Do you see what that means? Do you see what Paul has done here? He never mentions the name of Jesus. Instead, he refers to Jesus as the revealed truth from God of true godliness. Jesus is the mystery of godliness. He is the image of the invisible God. He was, as he says here in the first line, manifested in the flesh. Manifested means that he was made known or he was displayed. He was no longer hidden away. All historic creeds of the Christian faith begin with Jesus being made manifest. Now, this does include the fact that he was born of the virgin, but more so, it speaks to the fact that he lived a life of obedience to God on display for the entire world to see. The perfection of God's character, the power of God's hand, the compassion of God's heart, and the beauty of God's being were all radiating from the person of Jesus Christ. And we also see that Jesus was then vindicated by the Spirit. Now, what does vindication mean? Simply this. If you claim that something is true and people do not believe you, you are vindicated when evidence arises proving that you are right. Noah said the world was going to be flooded. People laughed at him. Then those people drowned. The floodwaters vindicated Noah. They proved his testimony was true. Well, that testimony of Noah, of course, that we can see the evidence of the vindication when those people looked out their windows and saw the storms breaking forth and the water falling and rising and, and crushing them. Well, what was the testimony of Jesus? How did the Holy Spirit vindicate him? Consider what Jesus claims about himself. Just a few things. Jesus claims to take away sin. Jesus claimed that he would build an everlasting kingdom. Jesus claimed that he would eventually judge the world. He promised to reward those who diligently seek him. And he claimed to be the son of God. If he remained in the grave, all of those things would be disproven. If the resurre resurrection never took place, none of these promises hold true. All of these claims would be proven false. But... Jesus did rise. Because Jesus was the perfect sinless sacrifice, he was raised from the dead. We could spend a lot of time here studying the theology of the resurrection. We're not going to do a lot today, but I do want to spend a little time here on the question of who raised Jesus from the dead. Let me show you simply who raised Jesus. First, we see that the Father raised Jesus. Acts chapter 3 verse 15, for example, it says, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Here we see just the generic word for God speaking of the Father. This is the typical way that it's written about most of the time in Acts. We see over and over and over speaking of the Father raising the Son. 
The second thing is that we see Jesus raised himself from the dead. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Who will raise it up? I will raise it up. Jesus also said in John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Who raised Jesus? Jesus raised Jesus. And then finally, we see that the Spirit also raised Jesus. Romans 8, 11, for example, says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit that indwells us is the Spirit of God that raised Jesus. Who raised Jesus? The Holy Spirit raised Jesus. We see that all three persons of the Trinity are active in the resurrection, and that shouldn't surprise us because the Trinity are always in perfect unity in their purposes. We worship one God in three persons. So when it teaches us that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, it is to say that when the Spirit raised Jesus, it proved all of his claims to be true. And the resurrection still stands as the centerpiece of our gospel. Paul teaches that there is no hope for us in Christ if he has not been raised. Because if he has not been raised, we are still in our sins. Now before we move forward, consider the way that Paul writes in pairs in this confession. First we see that he was manifested in the flesh and then vindicated by the spirit, flesh and spirit. Now what we're going to move forward to is to see the contrast of the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. The confession states that Jesus was seen by angels. Now this does not just mean that they happened to catch a glimpse of Jesus as he was passing by on his way from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, for example. It means that they purposely focused their attention on him. They paid attention to Jesus. And this is a really big deal. Now remember, back in Isaiah 6, that majestic heavenly vision of Isaiah when he saw the throne room of God. Do you remember what the angels were doing? They were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And we are told that these angels had six wings. What were they doing with those wings? Well, with two, they were utilizing them to fly. Two were being employed to cover their feet. That's an interesting curiosity. Why was that? Some people suggest that it's because of the idea of holy ground that is often used in the Old Testament. They were covering their feet for that purpose. But then it says that they were also using the last pair to cover their faces. Even though they were in the presence of Jesus on the throne himself, they covered their faces. They did not even dare to look on this holy, holy, holy God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 speaks about the Old Testament prophets and their proclamations of the gospel that was going to be revealed. And it says, It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he just tags this little extra line on the end where he says, Things into which angels long to look. What do the angels desire to look at, according to the Bible? The angels were longing to see the fulfillment of the prophecies. They were delighted in observing the unfolding plan of the sovereign architect of all of history. And when Jesus finally did arrive, the angels were paying attention. They were focused intently on it. The angels were there foretelling his birth. 
before he even arrived. And then the night of the birth, the armies of heaven filled the sky to join in song to declare that the mighty captain of heaven has begun his assault against the works of the devil by being born in a lowly manger. Then later we see when Satan comes to tempt Jesus, he tells Jesus, just throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. And what's going to happen? A host of angels will catch you. And then everybody will know that you're the Messiah. That's kind of the the scope of the temptation here. And what does Jesus do? He rejects the temptation. He obeys the Father. He waits until the right time for his messianic reality to be revealed. But then after the temptation ends, we read that then angels came to attend to him. Even at the temptation, these angels were there, and after the temptation, he was being cared for by them. And when Jesus was being arrested in the garden, he told Peter to put away his sword. Why? Matthew 26, 53, do you not think that I could appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I mean, Jesus was surrounded. They were paying attention. Like, look, if I want, Peter, what do you, what do you think you're going to do? Like, if I really needed help, I mean, right there, I just have to look up. I just have to think for one moment. I just have to consider and ask the Father, and he will immediately send 12 legions of angels. Like, I don't need your help, Peter. The angels were there also to announce the resurrection at the tomb. They stood by at the ascension, and according to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, they continue to worship him nonstop, forever, at the throne for eternity. The original readers of this text would have a much higher view of angels than we do. They would have understood them to be immensely powerful and immensely dangerous. Yet the angels set their attention on this man. Now we move from the heavenly realm and into the earthly realm, and we see that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. Now again, I think that this may call back to Isaiah 6. Remember what we just said, the song that was being declared, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. Now remember what we learned this past summer Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, when God the Father was speaking to Jesus, he was commissioning him, he was telling him the mission. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's just too small. It's too little, Jesus. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The name of Jesus has been proclaimed across the earth. It has been proclaimed from New York to Dubai and from Sydney to Siberia and from Belarus to Brazil, and the name of Jesus will continue to be proclaimed to the very ends of the earth because he is the only message worth carrying through every barrier and through every trial so that all might hear. He is the reason that we translate the Bible into every tongue. He is the reason that we send missionaries to every tribe. He is the message of hope that has been announced to the nations. Not just to Israel, not just to America, not just to this local body, but to the ends of the world. Now we move to a third pair of phrases here. And these are going to contrast the idea of the temporary and the eternal. We are told that Jesus was believed on in the world. Now we don't have a lot of time right now, but it would be a worthwhile study for you to consider how Paul uses the word world in his letters. He uses it 49 times, and for now, we're just going to look at two quick examples that help us kind of flesh out what he's getting at when he speaks of the world. 1 Corinthians 2.12, for example, says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And just a few verses later, in 1 Corinthians 3.19, we read, For the wisdom of the world is 
is folly with God. Now, obviously, Paul is not talking about the planet Earth here. He is speaking about that which offends God, something that has its own spirit to it, that has a, a, a feeling to it, that has a, 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 a perception to it, that has a direction to it, that is moving away from God, is the embodiment of all the foolishness that comes from rejecting God and His ways. So when it says that Jesus was believed on in the world, this phrase is a brilliant one because it is to say that Jesus was believed by people who were that, who were of the world, who were rebels, who were enemies, who were running from him, who were foolish. We who were once part of the rebellion against God have been saved by grace. So let me ask you, have you believed on Christ? Have you believed on Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sins? Have you trusted in Jesus to give you new life? Have you been saved from the consequences and the controlling power of your sin? If you are still part of the world, I call on you today, just like this text tells us to, to believe on him because he is worthy of your life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the final line reminds us that Jesus was then taken up into glory. That's just a simple way of saying that he didn't die again. Now consider the fact that Lazarus, he was raised from the dead, but eventually they had to wrap up his body again and bury him again. He had two funerals in his life. This guy, Lazarus, was put back into a grave, but Jesus, when he was raised, was raised for good. Jesus was raised never to taste death again. He led a victory march to heaven when he was taken up to glory, and he has ascended to the throne where he will be worshipped by all who trust on him forevermore. We see this ascension passage as glorious reality that Jesus Christ has now been enthroned forever. Jesus was raised, and Jesus is now in glory. Praise God for this good news. Praise God for the revealed mystery of godliness. Praise God for Jesus Christ, who is the mystery of godliness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful news. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed to us your Son, Jesus Christ. You have made him manifest. We thank you that he has been proclaimed even to us who live on the opposite side of the world and 2,000 years after the crucifixion. Yet we have heard and we have known and we have believed in Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now to live in light of this good news. Help us to carry it out. Help us to make this the anthem of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.